Welcome to Poetry Lectures, featuring talks by poets, scholars, and educators, presented by PoetryFoundation.org. In this program, we hear a conversation between German poet Jan Wagner and the director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute, Ilya Kaminsky. Jan Wagner was born in Hamburg in 1971 and has lived in Berlin since 1995. He is considered one of the major German poets of his generation and has won many awards for his work. His poetry has been cited for its precise language, harmonious imagery, and effortless play with forms. We'll hear Wagner discuss some of the major German poets of the 20th century, including Gottfried Benn, Bertolt Brecht, and Peter Huckel. He'll read examples from their work, as well as from his own poetry. The conversation took place at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago in October 2012. Jan Wagner begins with a quick look at the contemporary poetry scene in Berlin, then takes us back to the early 20th century and the young poet Georg Heim. Right now, it, it's a very lively time in German poetry. Uh, in fact, you can say, and many people have said so, that uh, the poetry scene, the contemporary poetry scene in Germany and Berlin is uh, as rich as it uh, hasn't been for, for decades. In fact, uh, since the 1910s, possibly. Looking back, I see uh, a great and 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 uh, very uh, diverse tradition of, of poetry, influenced also, of course, by, by other languages uh, and uh, other poetries from all over the world, which continues today uh, in, in a younger generation that vibrantly picks up on that, on that century of German poetry. I'm glad that you mentioned the younger poets and poets of Berlin. How do you see the old Berlin? What are the great poets of the old Berlin for you? Actually, I brought along some 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 poets from the old Berlin, and uh, and not all of them were born in Berlin, but but uh, but many of them today and even in their lifetime uh, counted as as Berlin poets. Um, starting off with uh, um, probably one of the most famous Berlin poets who wasn't born in Berlin actually, but in uh, in Silesia, uh, called Georg Heim, uh, um, uh, Georg Heim, who wrote many lovely. Sonnets about Berlin, actually. You, you find uh, uh, several sonnets uh, uh, entitled Berlin 1, Berlin 2, and so on, and so on. Um, Georg Heim was born elsewhere in Silesia, uh, Hirschberg, the, the city was called, and uh, moved to Berlin when he was, what, 12 years old or so. And um, Georg Heim is one of the, uh, one of the uh, main poets of the so-called uh, early uh, expressionism movement in Berlin. It's actually the... Uh, one of the first avant-garde movements in Germany, uh, and and very influential. Um, not only on me, uh, I've been strongly influenced by by Georg Heim, who's uh, alongside Georg Trakel, uh, who's not from Berlin, of course, and Jakob van Hodes, who is uh, uh, one of the great uh, exponents of of that of that uh, movement. Heim, you could term the Berlin poet because he was the uh, the one who. In a, in a, with, with very strong visual images, captured the Berlin of the 1910s and 12s in a manner that many people then, uh, and even now, saw as visionary. Uh, he really, as somebody put it, was a, a wandering subconscious, picking up on the, on the, on the uh, well, feelings and uh, um, uh, tensions of his time and forming from that poetry that reading it today really seemed to point toward the great catastrophes following later on. The First World War, uh, starting in 1914, two, two years after Georg Heim tragically 
died uh, at a very young age. Uh, he only he was 24 years old. He was 24 years old when he died. Yeah, and and and, and you can only wonder, uh, as is the case with, with so many wonderful poets, you know, what what he might have written uh, later on, what might have become of Georg Heim. He was a very early starter, you could say, writing in his youth. You could call, call it impressionist verse. Uh, very focused on himself and and uh, and maybe not all that interesting but then suddenly uh, discovering his own style and he was well, about 19 18 19 when he discovered his own style as i said there are great influences from other countries and Georgheim uh, is is a good person to start uh, with as an example of somebody who got influenced by by other european poetries uh, by other european poets, foreign language poets, and who, uh, in fact, discovered his own his own particular style by reading other poets. Heim famously kept a, a portrait of uh, Arthur Rimbaud in his uh, in his uh, in his room in his uh, bedchamber. He uh, well, he, he stayed with his parents for all his all of his life um, uh, in his chamber. He never had a mirror because he didn't like to look at himself at all. But he uh, so you can only imagine him staring at at uh, at Rimbaud's uh, picture on which he had written Deus. Uh, so uh, he he was the great influence on on uh, Georg Heim. In fact. Um, one of his girlfriends once said that he looked like uh, Arthur Rimbaud himself, and he was not only called uh, the German Rimbaud, but also the German Baudelaire. So that makes uh, that uh, you can see where his influences come come from. And like Baudelaire, he introduced the ugly, um, combined with the rich uh, imagery and, and 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 great visual effects into German poetry, while still uh, holding to uh, holding on to. Uh, you could say that you know the formal reservoir of of tradition. Uh, um, as I said, he wrote many sonnets uh, on Berlin. He almost always uses uh, 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 an iambic meter, a five-footed iambic meter, rhyming A B A B. Uh, that, that's his usual, uh, his common uh, manner. So much that that he could criticize for it. That uh, he's got a you know sort of stomping rhythm combined with this uh, strong, apocalyptic sometimes visual um, uh, visual effects. Uh, and only uh, uh, at the end of his life, meaning with 23, he started changing that style and writing sort of free verse, very libre poems, uh, which are uh, completely different from, from what he got famous for. Well, he is um, quite well known for that poem, A Demon of Cities, right? And you could, uh, I can totally see um, the French influence there as well, the kind of the wilderness, yeah. the demonic voice. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you would be willing to read it in German and in English for us, that poem? Why not read the first two stanzas in German to give you a taste of the German version and then read the uh, English translation uh, as a whole? Die Dämonen der Städte Sie wandern durch die Nacht der Städte hin, die schwarz sich ducken unter ihrem Fuß. Wie Schifferbärte stehen um ihr Kinn die Wolken schwarz vom Rauch und Kohlenruß. Ihr langer Schatten schwankt im Häusermeer und löscht der Straßen Lichterreihen aus. Er kriecht wie Nebel auf dem Pflaster schwer und tastet langsam vorwärts, Haus für Haus. Um, the first two stanzas in the, in the German original version. This is the English translation. The demons of the cities. They wander through the cities night and shrouds. The cities cower black beneath their feet. Upon the chins like sailors' beards, the clouds are black with curling smoke and sooty sleet. On seas of houses their long shadow sways, and snuffs ranked street lamps out as with a blow. 
Upon the pavement, thick as fog, it weighs and gropes from house to house, solid and slow. With one foot planted on a city square, the other knee upon a tower, they stand. And where the black rain falls, they rear, with blare of quickened pans pipes in a cloud-stormed land. About their feet circles a ritornell, with the sad music of the city's sea, like a great burying song. The shrill tones swell and rumble in the darkness changefully. They wander to the stream that dark and wide, as a bright reptile with gold-spotted back turns in the lantern dark from side to side in its sad dance while heaven's stare is black. They lean upon the bridge, darkly agog, and thrust their hands among the crowds that pass like fawns who perch above a meadow bog and plunge lean arms into the miry mass. Now one stands up. He hangs a mask of gloom upon the white-checked moon. The night, like lead, from the dun heaven settles as a doom on houses into pitted darkness fled. The shoulders of the cities crack. A gleam of fire from a roof burst open flies into the air. Big-boned, on the top beam they sit and scream like cats against the skies. A little room with glimmering shadow billows where one in labor shrieks her agony. Her body lifts gigantic from the pillows, and the huge devils stand about to see. She clutches, shaking, at her torture bed. With a long, shuddering cry, the chamber heaves. Now the fruit comes. A womb gapes long and red, and bleeding, for the child's last passage cleaves. The devil's necks grow like giraffes. The child is born without a head. The mother moans and holds it, on her back, clammy and wild, the frog fingers of fear play as she swoons. But vast as giants now, the demons loom, the horns in fury gall the bleeding skies, an earthquake thunders in the city's womb, about their hooves, where flint-struck fires rise. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, when Jörg Chaim was starting out as a young poet uh, in Berlin, one of his friends, supposedly in the same group with him, was gathered by Bayern. Um, Bayern, unlike Chaim, lived a very long life, changed many poetic styles over his career. I wonder if you could speak a little about his work as well for us. Well, Ben actually started out in the, in the same literary movement, that's true, in Berlin. He wasn't born in Berlin, but moved to Berlin and started out with a uh, short sequence, uh, short and very uh, influential sequence of poems called uh, Morg, of course, uh, featuring a Morg. And, and uh, uh, Ben uh, belongs to this great tradition of, of poet doctors, uh, like so many others, like, uh, like, like Williams, of course, and, and others. So Ben studied medicine in, in uh, Leipzig, in Berlin. He... Uh, uh, finished um, writing um, a study on, on, on uh, uh, epilepsy and then became a doctor for skin disease, uh, skin diseases and sexually transmitted diseases in Berlin. So his, his whole work, uh, his whole poetry throughout his life is quite influenced by, by the job he had, being a doctor, a very, very popular doctor too, and a very kind doctor, as, uh, as they say. And uh, in his first sequence, Morg, was based in that experience as well. These poems were uh, came as a shock to the reading audience. He's, uh, he wrote about uh, um, 
you know, dissecting dead bodies. He wrote about uh, disease in a very strong and also uh, in, in, in parts disgusting way, shocking for the, for the audience then and in fact shocking even now, a uh, hundred uh, uh, years later. Ben himself said, uh, looking back on his life and writing, uh, writing about his life, he said that reading his first poems, uh, the, the Morg sequence, he had to uh, 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 swallow a, a, a good deal of cognac before being able to read his own work. <laughs> and uh, and uh, then he admitted it, it's you know, good poetry. And it is good poetry uh, um, and still quite shocking. Uh, one of his most famous poems from that sequence is called Man and Woman Go Through the Cancer Barracks. A very famous poem. And even more famous, a very short poem uh, with a flower in its name called Little Aster, Kleine Aster in German. Would you mind reading that for us? I'll read the English translation of that poem. Whose, whose translation is it? Uh, this one is done by Babette Deutsch, Little Aster. A drowned truck driver was propped on the slab. Someone had stuck a lavender aster between his teeth. As I cut out the tongue and the palate, through the chest, under the skin, with my long knife, I must have touched the flower, for it slid into the brain lying next. I packed it into the cavity of the chest, among the excelsior, and it was soon up. Drink yourself full in your vase. Rest softly, little Aster. Have Ben's poetry changed at all over time? It, it changed very much. Uh, um, from that early expressionist beginning, he moved on to uh, poetry, which uh, is rhymed as well, and, and, and uh, uses lots of different uh, vocabulary, uh, uh, uses jargon from the, from the medical world, uses Berlin slang of the time, uh, actually you know, uses, you could say, jazz elements uh, and, and, and mixes all that into a very uh, peculiar mix, which has come to be called the, the Ben sound. The Ben sound, which was so influential that, that whole generations of German poets were influenced by that Ben sound. He, he uh, developed that sound in the 20s and 30s, And then, uh, after the Second World War, Ben uh, changed his style once again uh, and, and wrote what many have termed his mature style, which is a lot more relaxed. He doesn't use uh, strong formal uh, structures anymore. He, uh, he uh, turns to free verse and for the first time looks upon the world in a, in a much more relaxed way. Ben was not... Uh, Ben, ben is, 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 is an infamous figure in, in more ways than one. He uh, was all his life strongly opposed to uh, you know, the concept of progress. He didn't believe in progress at all. He didn't believe in, in uh, a, uh, you know, a social meaning of poetry or political poetry at all, which uh, opposed him to many of, of the poets, of course, writing in the 20s and, and 30s uh, in, in a time which was uh, politically so strongly divided uh, into, into uh, you know, left-wing and right-wing politics and also poetry. Many poets writing at the time, for example, Johannes Becher, who started out with Ben in the Expressionist movement and then turned to socialism, in fact, became the cultural minister of the GDR in the, in the 50s and, and 60s. Uh, uh, and Becher was strongly opposed to, to Gottfried Ben. Ben didn't believe in progress. Ben had a concept uh, of, as he termed it, artistry. Uh, um, the, 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 the poet as artist. I think you could say that uh, 
of, of the major lines in modern modern poetry. You could say that, that Ben is the German poet representing a line of poetry starting with uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, moving on to Baudelaire and Paul Valéry and so on, uh, um, a line of poetry focusing on, on, on the well-made poem, on, on the craft of poetry. Ben famously said, and that was in the 50s, he, uh, he uh, uh, was to, talking to students at the time, and it's actually one of the most famous essays or speeches on poetry in, in the uh, history of uh, German 20th century poetry, started saying to the students, well, that, that normally um, people would expect somebody to stand on, you know, on a meadow, having a sort of feeling, and, and that, you know, turning out to be some sort of poetry. And said, actually, that is not how poetry is made, or, uh, or poetry comes into existence. He said, poetry doesn't come into existence. Poetry is made. Poetry is manufactured. And, and if, you, if you subtract from the poem all sense of feeling and all sense of, 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 uh, of mood, uh, what, what remains, that might be the poem. And uh, so he was uh, focusing on, on, on craft and of, uh, on, on uh, the, the made poem and, and was strongly opposed to both poetry as a, as a uh, transmitter of feeling or mood and as a transmitter of political message. He, he said he, that there is no message involved in, in poetry and, and uh, famously said that poetry doesn't... Uh, move things forward, but poetry changes the person who reads the poetry. But therefore, was strongly opposed to uh, all uh, social and political movements in the 20s. So was infamous for that, and uh, of course, for his involvement with uh, fascism, with, with the Nazi dictatorship uh, in, the, in the 30s and 40s. He was uh, possibly due to the fact that he was uh, strongly opposed to all political uh, meaning in poetry, and, and strongly opposed to people like Johannes Becher and Bertolt Brecht uh, on, on, the, on the left uh, scene or le left political scene, was fascinated by the upcoming Nazi uh, movement and, and in, in fact, uh, greeted, welcomed the movement. Um, he, had, uh, he played a very unfortunate or a rather terrible role in, the, in 1933 and 1934 when he uh, uh, supported the uh, Nazi regime and, in fact, wrote some, some terrible pieces of prose supporting the, uh, the, the Nazi party, um, most infamously writing an open letter to the uh, literary emigrants, as it is called, answering a letter by Klaus Mann, uh, the, uh, the son of Thomas Mann, of course, uh, who, uh, like many others, was a huge admirer of Ben's poetry and had written a letter to him asking him why on earth uh, an intellectual, a man like Ben, a wonderful poet like Ben, could support such a barbaric movement. And Ben then wrote an open letter to uh, Klaus Mann and to all other literary immigrants, which is a, uh, um, a t terrible testimony of, of his uh, erring in those years. He quickly, of course, became dis disillusioned, was endangered himself, and, and, and spent the rest of the uh, Nazi time being unable to publish, uh, uh, going back to working as a, a doctor for the military, which he had done before in the First World War, and, and being endangered himself. But he had a dubious role, which uh, he, uh, in all fairness, uh, saw himself. And, and he was one of the first ones in 1946-47 writing about his involvement in, in, in that, in that uh, terrible time, writing a, uh, a double biography, it's called Double Life, and, and they're quoting the whole of the letter by Klaus Mann and saying, this young man, 
who was so much younger than I was at the time and so much more inexperienced than I was, was right. And he was one of the first to admit readily that, that he had made a big mistake, but still he uh, came to renewed fame in the post-war Germany and in fact was the greatest exponent of German poetry in the 50s and a very influential figure of generations to come. Would you please read for us perhaps one more poem by Bern that would show us a different side of Bern perhaps? I would read a late poem by, by Ben, a very famous poem, where he actually, uh, he wasn't very fond of humans. And, and his, and his uh, poetry uh, in the 20s, most of the time, depicted people by, by certain of their features, writing about a huge belly, for example, or a nose, or some, some peculiar haircut, uh, about a certain features, but not about the whole person, uh, never about the whole person. And suddenly in the 50s, he uh, had a, a much milder manner of... Uh, regarding his fellow human beings. So that would be, would be an example of the later relaxed Gottfried Benn. I read this in the German original version and then in the translation by Christopher Middle. Menschen getroffen. Ich habe Menschen getroffen, die, wenn man sie nach ihrem Namen fragte, schüchtern, als ob sie gar nicht beanspruchen könnten, auch noch eine Benennung zu haben, Fräulein Christian antworteten und dann wieder Vorname. Sie wollten an die Erfassung erleichtern, kein schwieriger Name wie Popiol oder Babendererde, wieder Vorname. Bitte, belasten Sie Ihr Erinnerungsvermögen nicht. Ich habe Menschen getroffen, die mit Eltern und vier Geschwistern in einer Stube aufwuchsen, nachts die Finger in den Ohren am Küchentisch lernten, hochkamen, äußerlich schön und ladylike wie Gräfinnen, die innerlich sanft und fleißig wie Nausika die reine Stirn der Engel trugen. Ich habe mich oft gefragt und keine Antwort gefunden, woher das Sanfte und das Gute kommt, weiß es auch heute nicht und muss nun gehen. People met. I have met people who, when asked what their names were, apologetically, as if they had no right to claim one's attention, even with an appellation, would answer Miss Vivian, then add just like the Christian name. They wanted to make things easier. No complicated names like Popkiss or Umbleby Dunball. Just like the Christian name, so please do not burden your memory. I have met people who grew up in a single room together with parents and four brothers and sisters. They studied by night, their fingers in their ears, beside the kitchen range. They became eminent, outwardly beautiful. Veritable grande dame and inwardly gentle and active as nausica, with brows clear as angels' brows. Often I have asked myself but found no answer where gentleness and goodness can possibly come from. Even today I can't tell, and it's time to be gone. Thank you, that was a beautiful poem. It is a beautiful poem. Um, I wonder um, if you could perhaps speak a little bit about a poet completely different from Bern, somebody like Brecht, who did in some ways very much believe in political message. I, I did mention Brecht's name because Brecht and Ben really uh, have always been seen as the great opponents of in poetry, in German, German language poetry, already in the 20s and 30s and then in the 50s. Both of them really uh, saw each other as the opponent, 
Brecht uh, famously referring to uh, Ben uh, as a drop of slime, uh, um, uh, referring to, to a famous poem by Gottfried Ben, where he said, uh, if one only could go back uh, uh, through uh, to one's, uh, you know, Ur, Ur ancestors and become a drop of slime in the, in the, you know, in the, in the ancient seas. And then Brecht said, well, you know, that, that's not my, that's not what I want to do at all. Uh, and Brecht obviously believed in, in a political purpose of not only poetry, but of literature and art. Brecht, who said that uh, poetry has a somewhat autonomous district, but, but is by no means uh, unlinked from uh, history and from uh, society. Strangely enough, though, as strongly opposed as they were to each other, they share some common, some common features. Brecht was a bit older than, than Ben. Brecht was born in uh, 1886, and, and both um, were strongly influenced by the, uh, by the Bible, for example, by uh, the uh, Martin Luther songs. Both of them loved to read uh, uh, crime novels. Both really uh, drew on the uh, uh, more popular side. Uh, ben, as I said, uh, you know, making use of this uh, sort of slang vocabulary, slang vocabulary in, in Berlin, the Berlin slang of the time, and Brecht, of course, uh, drawing on the uh, uh, song tradition. In fact, English songs as well, Brecht making use in his poetry of English terms and, um, of course, becoming most famous for, the, uh, for his uh, um, work with um, Kurt Weil, the, the German composer. The Three Penny Opera was the uh, most famous piece Bertolt Brecht uh, has ever done, writing the songs for the Three Penny Opera, which in the 1920s was so popular that, that, uh, that uh, people used to sing the songs by Brecht on the streets of Berlin. Uh, of course, due to the wonderful music of Kurt Weil as, as well, but uh, due all, also to the uh, very popular song verse that uh, Brecht wrote. I think there's no, for myself, there's, there's no poet I, I know so much by heart of, like Bertolt Brecht. He has written uh, the most amazing songs. Of course, m many political poems, which uh, are very much bound to their own time. Uh, Brecht left Germany quickly, uh, had to leave it quickly because uh, he was uh, from from the very start he was on the on the on the uh, you know red list of the Nazis and, and and Brecht went to Denmark into exile, went on to uh, to Finland to Russia and then of course to California, where in uh, Santa Monica he spent uh, along with many other exiles uh, many years along with Thomas Mann, along with uh, uh, Leon Feuchtwanger and other German exiles. Uh, living in California, and Brecht wrote many poems that, that uh, he sought uh, to have a political impact directly. He uh, famously said when he was in Denmark that he was almost ashamed uh, to think of beauty, that only the uh, speeches Hitler gave on the radio forced him to his desk and write, and, and that's what he did. Write, uh, he did write a very effective poems against uh, Nazi Germany. Later on in the, in the GDR, when he was living in East Berlin, he went from California back to uh, East Berlin, uh, where he famously founded the Berlin Ensemble Theater and uh, produced his own very popular, very influential plays. But also there, he wrote uh, poetry that had what he said, a Gebrauchswert, uh, you know, something uh, you could you use in a way you could uh, you could use in everyday life and in political life. 
But he also wrote uh, many of the most beautiful love poems in German poetry. Brecht is a, an amazing uh, love poetry uh, writer and, and maybe uh, um, better known for these than for his political poetry. Maybe should read one of his um, most popular poems, uh, a wonderful piece in German having the title Erinnerung an die Marie A, a memory of Mary A, which is uh, to be found in almost every anthology of German poetry. It's a poem which many people know by heart and a beautiful piece. The English translation is done by Derek Mahon, the, the Irish poet. And, uh, and the title is not uh, a Memory of Marie A, but in English, A Cloud. And the cloud is a very prominent feature of this poem. One evening in the blue month of September, we lay at peace beneath an apple bough. I took her in my arms, my gentle lover, and held her closely like a dream come true. While far up in the tranquil summer heaven there was a cloud, I saw it high and clear. It was so white and so immense above us, and as I watched it was no longer there. Since then so very many different evenings have drifted blindly past in the general flow. Perhaps the apple orchard has been flattened, and if you ask me where the girl is now, I have to admit I really don't remember. I can imagine what you're going to say, but even her face I truly can't recapture. I only know I kissed it there that day. Even the kiss I would have long forgotten, if that one cloud had not been up there too. I see it and will always see it plainly, so white and unexpected in the blue. Perhaps the apple boughs are back in blossom. Maybe she holds a fourth child on her knees. The cloud, though, hung there for a moment only. And, as I watched, it broke up in the breeze. Thank you very much. You know, um, W. Shodian once told the Russian poet Joseph Brodsky that she has met three great poets in his lifetime. Two of them being Yeats and Odin, uh, and the third one well, was Brecht. I wonder if you could take a few minutes to tell us a little more about other poets of, uh, who live it in a GDR. I'm thinking particularly about Peter Hucho, um, who began as a poet of a GDR, but then lived under civilians and had to move away to the West. What would be your take on him? Peter Huchel uh, actually started out in the, uh, uh, in the 20s and, and, um, and 30s as a nature poet. He belonged to a group of uh, poets uh, along with uh, Günther Eich and, uh, and others who wrote uh, nature poetry, who in fact in the uh, 30s did not emigrate from Nazi Germany but stayed there and turned to something uh, which became famous as the inner immigration. They, they continued to write their, their poetry, didn't really uh, participate, uh, didn't utter their political uh, opinion, but continued to write nature poetry. Uh, then, uh, in fact, he uh, uh, lived in, uh, in East Germany and um, quickly became known, well, he had been known as, as, as nature poet. He was famous as, as nature poet and uh, continued in that vein in the uh, 40s and 50s, but, but also became known as the founder and first editor of the, the, the most influential magazine, literary magazine of the GDR, called uh, Sinn und Form, and, and, or Meaning and Form would be the, the uh, literal English translation. He was a, uh, an editor who uh, really got many careers 
in, in Eastern Germany going. He was cooperating with Bertolt Brecht uh, on that magazine and uh, supported, for example, the young uh, Bobrovsky uh, and other, many other young poets. He continued to write uh, nature poems, but became more and more hermetic in a way. He uh, had started out with poems true to uh, meter and to rhyme, poems that uh, really focused on uh, his uh, home country. He was born close to Berlin in a landscape, in a, well, the, the flat landscape surrounding Berlin, uh, full of, uh, well, rivers and lakes and beautiful sort of harsh country, which he uh, turned into his own mythological uh, or, or mythic landscape and uh, which features strongly in his uh, poetry. And uh, he continued to write about that, also about the... Uh, people of that landscape, writing about uh, maidens or maids, uh, about farm life, about people working in stables and so on. He was heavily criticized in the GDR for, uh, for his imagery by uh, another uh, great nature poet for uh, forcing nature into uh, something which was not natural, for using imagery that is less descriptive of natural phenomena but uh, trying to uh, strike something new, a new, uh, 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 new imagery, a new uh, uh, effect uh, in a metaphorical way. A and that is true in a way. He's, he uh, really developed a strong metaphorical way of writing, becoming, becoming darker and darker in the GDR, uh, also because he wanted to smuggle some political meaning into his poetry at the time, becoming more hermetic. He's really famous for uh, developing a great uh, way of simile and, and, and metaphor in his writing, always based on, on, based on nature, natural images, and on landscape, but also on the works of Jakob Böhme, the, the mystic uh, and philosopher as well. He himself said that, that, that nature in itself does not interest him in itself, but that he was interested in, in, in nature as a historical place, uh, in, 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 in the traces that history and mankind left in the in the landscape, in nature. So in all his natural images, there's always a sense of history and of nature as well, and of war, of course, uh, of, the, of the traces that, that, that war has left in nature. Maybe it would be a good idea to, to read a poem, a short and, and quite, quite famous poem by, by Peter Huchel, to give an impression of, of, of his imagery and of, of the very strong simile he uses uh, in his poetry. Um, I'll read this one maybe only in English. It's translated by Michael Hamburger. The English title is Roads. In German it's called Chaussin. Roads. Choked sunset glow of crashing time. Roads. Roads. Intersections of flight. Car tracks across the plowed field that with the eyes of killed horses saw the sky in flames. Nights with lungs full of smoke with the hard breath of the fleeing when shots struck the dusk. Out of a broken gate, ash and wind came without a sound, a fire that sullenly chewed the darkness. Corpses flung over the rail tracks, their stifled cry like a stone on the pallet, a black humming cloth of flies closed their wounds. So this would be an example of the, of the later Huchel, uh, not, uh, not rhyming anymore, not using uh, strict formal patterns, but uh, 
using a sort of free verse, sometimes only only one uh, one word per line, and uh, and as I said, making strong making use of very strong imagery that that really sticks to uh, sticks in the mind. The humming cloth of flies that uh, that is closing the wounds, uh, similes. Uh, like a stone, the staff will cry like a stone. The paddle, very strong imagery that that uh, that is uh, playing a prominent role in that uh, in that poetry. He he was a slow writer, and 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 then publishing only three slim volumes uh, of of what has to be has come to be called hermetic poetry, but full of marvelous imagery. In general, I think the uh, the great duo of German poetry in the 50s and 60s, of course, were Brecht and Ben. Everybody turned to them, uh, favoring either Brecht or favoring Gottfried Ben in the 60s, 70s. No one, no one really uh, could write poetry without referring either to Gottfried Ben or Brecht. But then Peter Huchel and Bobrovsky, both from the GDR, um, I think uh, were maybe more, you know, poets, poets, uh, very influential on the younger generation and certainly uh, on myself as well. But others like Lutz Seiler, a wonderful German poet who's some years older than I am, he's uh, very influenced by Peter Huchel. In fact, he's living in, in Huchel's house in Wilhelm's Horst nowadays and, and uh, taking care of the estate of Peter Huchel. Let me um, ask you a question. The 20th century was a rather dark time for German poetry, all the poets you mentioned, it, but also, of course, Twarkel and Celan. And yet, even though you spoke with so much admiration for all the poets just now, um, in your own work, there is, to, to my mind, this amazing, almost radical turn from the darkness to something else. And I wonder um, where it is that you see German poetry going, and perhaps as you answer this question, you could share some some of your own poems with us that you would like Americans to hear. Sure, yeah, yeah. I could read some some uh, uh, poems in the uh, maybe one or two in the original version to to uh, give an impression of how it sounds, and and then in an English translation. Um, talking about twentieth century German poetry, there are some names you you have to mention, and and apart from uh, Rilke. Uh, of course, uh, Paul Celan. Uh, Paul Celan would be one of the names uh, you, you, you cannot get around, one of the most influential and greatest uh, uh, poets writing in German in the 20th century. Both of these, Rilke and Celan, of course, are great influences also on the younger generation writing today. For us, those born around 70, it was less Brecht and Ben. They have been influential on the, on the poets uh, born in the, in the 40s and 50s, who in turn influenced us. But I think there are two poets born in the 60s, uh, in the early 60s, that have been uh, role models, as it were, for many younger poets writing today. Uh, and those are uh, Dos Grünbein, I think, uh, was born in Dresden in the GDR, and uh, who might be the representative poet of his, of his generation, and Thomas Kling, who died uh, seven or eight years ago, too young as well, he was uh, 48, I think, and who picked up on the more uh, avant-garde tradition of uh, you know, Austrian poetry and uh, representing a vein of poetry focusing on language as material. Probably the, the, the language poetry in America would be the uh, uh, equivalent. Mm -hmm. What I think makes the younger generation so very lively is that they can, uh, without having to say, I am part of the avant-garde or language movement, or on the other hand, part of the uh, traditional uh, poetry or a more uh, narrative strain, can pick up on the best of both traditions and uh, create from that a very own style. The, the, the younger scene writing today 
which is focusing on Berlin, really. There are, uh, most of the uh, younger poets are living in Berlin, which is a good, good spot for poetry and uh, uh, featuring a very lively scene. Pick up on the best of both traditions, which really results in a poetic landscape, which is uh, not homogenous at all, uh, but picks up on, on nature poetry, on political poetry, on language poetry, and on a narrative strain, as well as on um, poetic traditions from the United States, from England, from Poland, Russia, and the Scandinavian countries. How do you see your own work in, in that um, scene? What forms of your own do you think you, you could share with us that would best represent that scene? For, for myself, as well, both these uh, traditions are uh, uh, important. I, I do like to play around with the uh, traditional aspects of poetry, you know, traditional forms that, that uh, came upon us. I like subverting forms like the sonnet or the Sistina or the Villanelle, because for me it's, it's really a way of uh, experimenting with language as well. Those strict forms can result in a very uh, playful approach to language and can force you in a way to discover strains of imagery and of thought unknown to yourself. As John Ashbery once said, I think, uh, when he was asked why he writes Sistinas, he said that uh, it's like going downhill on a bicycle and you, not, not the feet uh, move the pedals, but the pedals move the feet and you do not know where, where you will end up. And I think that's the great beauty of using those forms uh, and, and using them in, a, in an experimental manner can result in a, in a very uh, new and playful approach to language. So I do love to uh, play with that. I do at the same time love the use of narrative or the uh, allusion to a certain kind of narrative which the reader then is, is left to continue. Uh, I do love strong imagery, which is maybe clear from my uh, love for Peter Huchel and for Georg Heim, who, who are both strong visual poets. And I do love that strain and I am very fond of uh, metaphor, of, of visual imagery, and at the same time, as I said, as sub, you know, to subvert tradition. This embrace of uh, various traditions that you're speaking of this ability to uh, be in all the camps and in no camp at once um, is very meaningful, I think, uh, especially for a new younger voice to be able to take from various traditions and to create something new. Would you share a poem with us, perhaps? Sure. Um, I will read a poem um, which is uh, based in the ordinary, which is, which is another aspect, of course, which, which is important f for me, uh, that, that every day uh, yields so much poetic material, which then suddenly, uh, you know, all those things that, that, uh, that uh, um, seem so small and, and are so, so easily overlooked in everyday, in everyday life have the potential to yield a, a, great, po a great poetical uh, energy. And uh, so this will be an example both of subverting uh, a tradition. It, it, uh, I will read a sonnet or a sonnet subversion. And the title refers to a, a very stubborn weed, which uh, every German gardener uh, knows and, and hates. Uh, it's, um, you, can, you, you can eat it, you can turn it into soup and sell it, but you cannot eat so much of it uh, to get rid of it completely. The, the, the German name for, for this weed is Giersch. The, the translators have chosen a different weed in English because uh, otherwise the, the, the poem would make sense. The, the poem plays with the, with the word Giersch as well, so they chose a different weed altogether. I will read the German version first. Giersch. Nicht zu unterschätzen, der Giersch, mit dem Begehren schon im Namen. Darum die Blüten, die so schwebend weiß sind, keusch, wie ein Tyrannentraum. Kehrt stets zurück wie eine alte Schuld, 
schickt seine Kassiber durchs Dunkel, unterm Rasen, unterm Feld, bis irgendwo erneut ein weißes Widerstandsnest emporschießt. Hinter der Garage, beim knirschenden Kies der Kirsche, Giersch, als Schäumen, als Gischt, der ohne ein Geräusch geschieht, bis hoch zum Giebel kriecht, bis Giersch schier überall sprießt, dem ganzen Garten Giersch sich über Giersch schiebt, ihn verschlingt mit nichts als Giersch. Now, the English title would be Spurge. Not to underestimate Spurge, the urge already in its name. And hence the blossoms so floating white, virginal as a tyrant's dream. Always returns like some old debt, sends its secret missive through darkness under the grass, under the field, until somewhere else renewed, a white resistant cell emerges. Behind the garage, by the crunching gravel, the cherry, spurge, as frothing, as surf, that without sound occurs until it creeps to the gable top, until Spurge surges over everything in the whole garden, Spurge thrusts itself over Spurge, submerged by nothing but Spurge. That was translated by the Canadian poet Danielle Jeunesse and the American poet Julian Smith Newman. Thank you. You uh, mentioned the subversion of the forum, and it made me think of an American poet, Tom Gunn, who said uh, every sonnet is a plot against the sun. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a lovely way to put it. I love also the attentiveness to detail in the poem. Uh, you mentioned it, Celan, earlier, and of course Celan had this notion of attentiveness as a natural prayer of a human soul. Yeah. Could you perhaps share one more poem with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so this poem was translated by uh, David Kaplan. I read, read uh, only the English version. It's an homage to the, uh, to the Roman mosquito. Essay on Nets. As if every character had fled all at once from the newspaper and hovered as a swarm in the air. They hover as a swarm in the air, transmitting from the awful news nothing. Prudent muses, emaciated pegasuses, humming nothing but themselves into the air. Born of the last band of smoke when the candle is snuffed. And so weightless it's hardly possible to say they are, appearing more as shadow from an alternate world now cast into ours, they dance, limbs now so thin as if drawn with a pencil. Tiny sphinxes are their bodies, Rosetta stone without the stone. And, uh, well, the, the last one maybe in, 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 uh, in German and English, but it's a very short, short poem, playing yet again with a, with a form, with a, of course, with the most popular Japanese form, the haiku. This is a sort of double haiku. In German it's called Teebeutel. Teebeutel. Eins. Nur in Sackleinen gehüllt, kleiner Eremit in seiner Höhle. Zwei. Nichts als ein Faden führt nach oben. Wir geben ihm fünf Minuten. 
um, the English translation is by, by Ian Galbraith, the Scottish poet and translator. Tea bag. One. Draped only in a sackcloth mantle. The little hermit in his cave. Two. A single thread leads to the upper world. We shall give him five minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Would you like to do Scherche one more poem, if you have any more there? I read one short poem in German and in English. Wippe. Mach dich schwerer, rufen sie. Also schließe ich beide Augen. Denke an Säcke voll Zement und Eisengießereien, Elefanten, an den Anker in seinem Schlamm, wo ein Manöver Wale vorübergleitet, an das Bullenhaupt eines Ambusses. Nur eine Weile die Luft anhalten, warten, doch nichts hebt sich oder senkt sich, während ein Fasan schreit und die Blätter fallen, meine unwilligen Beine zu kurz, um je den Grund zu fassen, mein Kopf beinahe in den Wolken. This is another poem playing around with a, also with rhyme and slant rhyme, um, and it's the translation is by the English poet Simon Armitage. Seesaw. Make yourself heavier, they shout. With my eyes closed, I conjure bags of cement and iron foundries. Think of elephants, the anchor rooted in mud as a rumor of whales slides past of the bull-headed anvil, and all the while holding my breath. But nothing ascends or sings except for a pheasant's screech and the falling leaves, the ground always too far for my short, dithering legs to reach, my head almost in the clouds. That was Jan Wagner reading the original German and an English translation of his poem, Seesaw. The conversation with Ilya Kaminsky was recorded at the Poetry Foundation in Chicago on October 19, 2012, as part of International Poets in Conversation and was sponsored by the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute. English translations of Jan Wagner's poems are included in the anthology 20th Century German Poetry, published by Macmillan. Several books of Wagner's poetry have been published in German. Keep up with the world of poetry by visiting the Poetry Foundation website, where you'll find articles by and about poets, an online archive of more than 10,000 poems, the Poetry Learning Lab, the Harriet blog about poetry, the complete back issues of Poetry Magazine, and other audio programs to download. I'm Ed Herman. Thanks for listening to Poetry Lectures from poetryfoundation.org.